I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford. Planet Ford has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Ford in spring or online at planetford.com. in law enforcement, forensic, and crime scene investigations. Uh, joining us today on Crime Scene Today, I have Joe Manns again from the Fire Marshal Office and uh, Bomb Squad, uh, explosion expert and uh, dealing with uh, scenes that deal with explosive stuff. And today he brought up an interesting topic that I thought would be uh, great to, to explore is the use of canines and their roles in uh, Bomb Squad's Fire Marshal's Office and their investigation. So, Joe, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me, Dan. So uh, you sort of brought this topic, and I think it's interesting um, to sort of discuss uh, the many roles that uh, we we don't always think about. Uh, you know, we mainly think as far as in law enforcement, uh, general uses, when we think of canines, we think of those that are uh, searching down escape prisoners and bite dogs running in, getting a person with a warrant stuff. But there's so many different uses uh, for them. And if you could just sort of go into to how you got involved in this and sort of the uses that y'all use them for the fire marshals and explosives and those type of things. Sure. Um, so. With the Montgomery County Fire Marshal's Office, we have uh, explosive detection canines and accelerant canines. Two of our, our current two canines are from ATF, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. And then we have another explosive canine, which was from a private vendor, which was uh, K2 out of North Carolina. I started in the canine world in 2013, the end of 2012, 2013. So we had uh, received an invitation from ATF basically stating that the military was trying to reassign explosive canines that were in current inventory, more or less, with the Marine Corps. And they wanted to know if we wanted uh, to go basically pick out a canine and uh, bring it home and then schedule uh, training. So. uh, So these were previously dogs being used by uh, by the Marines in uh, Afghanistan deployment and Middle East and and all the, I guess, the war efforts and and whatnot in and detecting explosives over there. That's correct. So after September 11th, um, they started uh, their ground operations uh, in the Middle East. And as they started ramping up, they started to realize that the uh, the enemy was basically using um, high explosives, military ordnance and military explosives uh, against our soldiers as far as. um, improvised explosive devices. And, you know, you hear on the news, they talk about IEDs, uh, soldiers getting hit by IEDs. So the military began to ramp up this program uh, in basically in overtime. And they started sending soldiers, uh, sending Marines to um, to train with these dogs and get them on the ground in the Middle East. So uh, when 2007, 2008, uh, from my understanding, was pretty much the uh, uh, the really hard and heavy fighting that was going on over there. And so around um, 2010, 2011, they started uh, getting a grip on what was happening in the Middle East. And so they would use these dogs to clear roads, um, clear, you know, convoy paths, clear buildings, things like that. They had two different types of explosive, explosive dogs. One was the, uh, the Ted dog, the tactical explosive detecting dog. And those are pretty much, uh, just, you know, the aggressive bite dogs that also, uh, you know, detect explosive odor as well. And then they had, you know, just the regular odor detecting dogs, which are typically your Labradors. And so when these dogs became surplus, uh, 
me and one of my coworkers, we went to uh, uh, Southern Pines, North Carolina, to K2's Kennels, which was just phenomenal. They've got a really remarkable setup there as far as kennels and training and everything else. And so they pretty much brought the dogs out. We watched uh, watched the dogs work. And at the, you know, the end of the day, we pick a dog. And if it wasn't already picked, more or less, um, you know, it pretty much it was ours. So they, uh, we went through that process. Uh, they have a full discharge program, just like a soldier. When a soldier discharges from the military, um, the canines do the same thing. So they, uh, you know, went for a full physical. The dogs were taken over to Fort Bragg, were examined by you know, military vets. They got the, you know, the green light to be uh, reassigned to law enforcement. So the second day I was there, um, they gave us a, a day of training, you know, and basically it is the hand commands things like that. Now, mind you, I'd never been a canine handler before. I've owned dogs all my life, but, you know, never having um, worked a dog and understanding a dog's behavior, understanding their needs, understanding how they work, uh, you know, it, it can get a little overwhelming. So I ended up going well, back. And you bring up a good point because because these dogs are working. These are work dogs. These aren't, these aren't pets. Uh, they're, exactly. they're trained to work and, and that is a different environment. Well, so one of the things that needs to, in my opinion, needs to be cleared up in, um, in the public, you know, everybody looks at your dog and, you know, they'll ask you, is that a service dog? Um, no, he's not a service dog. He is a police working dog. You know, uh, you know, military working dogs. There's there's a big difference there. Um, now, granted, there are some phenomenal programs out there for service dogs. Um, I've seen some of those dogs and it's just amazing the things these dogs can do. But they are different. They're not comfort dogs. They're not any of that. Um, and I, I think the main thing you take away from the training is um, they're not humans. You know, they they speak a different language. They learn differently. They understand differently. Um, and they know what they're doing. You have to learn to read them and understand what it is that they're showing you, um, you know, and that's, you know, every every person is different. Well, so is every canine. Um you know, when Echo, my first dog, the dog I got from K2, uh, when I went to, well, let me rephrase that. The first dog I got from K2, um, her name was Jet, and she was a four-year-old black lab, high-speed dog. Uh, what set her apart was that she was uh, remote operated. So I could use a whistle and hand commands just like a duck dog and send that dog down range, um, having safe separation and the dog would search whatever it was I wanted the dog to search. And then I could recall it, bring it home. You know, if a dog, you know, if I had a car sitting out somewhere a hundred yards away, I could send that dog down range a hundred yards. That dog would search that car and basically, uh, Tell me if it detected odor or not, uh, which is really impressive. The amount of training and everything that goes into making those dogs th that way uh, and on top of their, um, you know, explosive odor detection is just phenomenal. The, uh, the handlers have to learn, you know, how to make the dog do as they're asked. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a fine line with, you know, with dogs. Some days they're in great moods and some days they really don't want to do this, just like us when we get up every day. Um, for the most part, um, I've been very fortunate. So I went for my full uh, 30 days of training back at K2 uh, in April of uh, 2013. 
And halfway through my training, Jet just shut down. I mean, just completely shut down. She did not, uh, she didn't want to search. She, you could just tell it wasn't in her heart anymore. And when it was stuff she wanted to do, it was great. But if it's stuff I wanted her to do, it, not so much. So we were struggling and I was going into remedial training. We were trying to do everything we could to get this dog's drive to come back. And we were doing an outdoor exercise where we were sending the dogs downrange to um, uh, search cars. And I sent Jet downrange. She goes down. I see the change in behavior. In other words, I know she's on odor, but um, she just wanders off. You know, she didn't go to the source like she was supposed to. So then I called her back and I sent her back down range again a second time. This time she goes down range. Um, she sniffs out the car. She alerts, you know, which in with the military working dogs uh, would be to lay down and stare at me. And they're supposed to hold that for up to two minutes. Well, she held it for maybe five seconds and took off chasing a grasshopper. So, you know, her attention span, her focus wasn't there. So I called her back a third time. This time I'm frustrated. She's frustrated. She's ticked off because in her mind, she's already alerted to odor twice. And has shown you twice where it's at. Yeah. And she hasn't been paid for it. So the third time I send her downrange, um, she goes down, she goes up to that car. She jumps through the window of the car, goes into the passenger seat, uh, grabs the explosive, which is a five pound bag of ammonium nitrate, comes back out of the car, looks at me, shakes it and drops it. And my instructor just started dying laughing. He goes, son, if a dog could give you the finger, that's what she just did. He goes, but unfortunately, she's now disqualified from working with explosives ever again. She is now aggressed on the odor and that can't ever happen. So in that, uh, you know, two minute time frame, you know, she she retired out. So. Uh, I still had a week of school to go and pretty much, uh, went back to the, the hotel, started packing all my stuff and ready to head back to Houston. And I was stopped in the next morning just to say goodbye to everybody. And one of the, uh, the majors from the Marine Corps who I had met numerous times, he come up and he goes, Hey, I heard about jet. He goes, I am so sorry. He goes, you know, they're just like people. Sometimes they, they, you know, just wake up and don't want to do this anymore. And he says, that happens a lot. Um, he says, you know, if you would like to pick out another dog, we have some more surplus dogs that are here and you'll get the pick of them. So, you know, the only caveat to that is they can't take Jet back. So Jet has to come home. So, uh, I made a phone call to my wife. I said, Hey, you know, this is what just happened. Um, I have the option to get another dog, but I have to keep jet, you know, what's, what's your opinion? And she was like, well, okay. So that would have meant we would have had four dogs at home. Um, you know, two Australian shepherds and two high speed Labradors. And so that kind of changes the dynamic, uh, you know, at your house as well. So anyway, I went ahead and, uh, came back and I told the major, I said, yep, uh, let's do it. And so he put me out with a trainer. Um, I got to watch three dogs work. I, um, I got to work all three dogs. And then, um, at the end of the day, I just had to pick a dog to be it, but I pretty much knew her name was echo and she was a, you know, little 60 pound, uh, black lab. And she and I just, we hit it off immediately. We bonded immediately. Um, and it, it was so easy because she, you know, we clicked, um, a lot of times I didn't even have to tell her what it is that I wanted. She just knew 
based on the environment or the scenario that we were in. Um, so it made, it made things very easy for me to, you know, have a dog that just understood. Um, so we went through our training, our certification, all of that. Now, when I get into start talking about things like training, um, gosh, there is just so much that you have to learn. Um, you know, you get into the different types of explosives and then you start getting into vapor pressures of explosives when, you know, basically your chemistry, your chemistry of pyrotechnics, um, you know, you have, uh, commercial explosives. Then you also have military explosives and very, very seldom do you see the military explosives, you know, in the civilian world, but it's not to say it's not there. Um, you know, so we trained, you know, on just about everything, uh, RDX, TNT, PETN, dynamite, your, you know, all of your powders. Um, and then a lot of stuff such as, you know, ammonium nitrate, and those are all your staples and pretty much anything that you're going to find with ease of access to make an IED in the civilian world, we're training on it. And you have to understand. So now as far as, you know, you went up there and they trained you basically how to handle the dog. So what's the next, so you say there's a lot of training and stuff, but I mean, is that where you have to travel back up there for that? This is what happens at home. This is what you're regularly doing. What, what's that part of training like? So when we were training at, um, at K2, at the kennel facility, um, we, we would go to different types of facilities, you know, just exposing the dogs to different environments, um, and then giving them different explosive odors. So I can have a warehouse and I can put a pound of ammonium nitrate in that warehouse and... Um, you know, the dog will go round and round looking for it, uh, because that vapor is not as dense. It's not as heavy. Um, whereas you could change it out and then put, you know, a heavier odor in there, uh, such as your military stuff, your C4s and stuff. And the dogs will pick that up faster. So they teach us where to put that dog to be most productive. So, um, when you walk in, you're even the subtle stuff that you don't even pay attention to. First thing you do is you walk in and you start trying to feel where the air currents are. You know, is there a fan running? Is there, you know, AC systems running? Things like that. And you're looking for those air currents, um, to see where your odor is going to be pooling. And typically we'll start off in a corner because an odor is always going to push to a corner. And once a dog can get in that odor, they can usually track it right back to the source. But it's amazing to watch them work. Um, Echo, for me, gosh, that girl, she made life so easy for me because she, uh, you know, she was self-motivated, self-thinker. She also had um, poise and was very precise. Um, you know, she was detailed in her search and, you know, she just took her time. One of the things that we do in our training is that, um, you teach them, you know, every time we go out and train, they always win. You know, I don't ever take the dogs out and, you know, go training or doing t- any type of search where they don't win because I don't want that to be in their head that, you know, I'm going to go out, I'm going to do all of this work and not be rewarded for it. So, you know, uh, even, even on a, a, a true operation, uh, we go in, we search a building, say we have a bomb threat, we search a building, we will put down what we call drop hides along the way, you know, in a corridor in a, you know, um, or in a, you know, just somewhere in that building, like in a restroom or something, we'll hide something that the dog can find so the dog, it keeps the dog's head back in that game, things like that. Anyway, I was getting off track. So anyway, the, uh, the training that I got from, uh, K2 was, um, pretty standard. And when I say standard, meaning, um, I got the same training our soldiers got. Um, it was, it was really good training, um, 
you know, you're, they're not going to give you a dog and no owner's manual. So you have to, you know, understand the quirks. And, and these instructors, uh, the guys that teach this stuff, they all know their stuff and they can look from dog to dog and they can see that change in behavior. Uh, they can see the, um, you know, when the dog goes into odor, things like that. You know, when you're the handler and you're you're that close to your dog, a lot of times you miss it and you have other guys observing and they'll say, yeah, she was, you know, she was in odor, you know, back here in this room and you pulled her off, you know, that sort of stuff. And it's like, really? So you learn to pay attention more and more to how the dog is behaving. Um, Echo was like a poker player, you know, she was real stoic. She, you know, her, um, you know, her change of behavior was real subtle. My current dog camp, uh, ATF canine, he's like a Tasmanian devil. And, you know, going from, you know, a Cadillac to this little dog who bounces all over the place. And it's just, you know, he's ready to go high strung. Sometimes I wonder why I even did this to myself. Uh, you know, going from a Cadillac dog to this uh, was, you know, kind of a big shock to me because Echo made my life easy. Um, and then when I got to ATF, well, Echo uh, retired in uh, 2018. She had uh, torn her CCL in her back leg, which is like an ACL in a human. And required surgery and basically put a titanium plate in her knee. Um, and you know, she could have quality life. She just can't be, you know, a working dog anymore. So the opportunity came up to get one of the canines from ATF and ATF has got a world-class program. Those guys that are over there just, impressive. I'm just impressive. Uh, it's amazing just how small a community it is because those trainers up there know so many other trainers, you know, across the nation and uh, pretty much all over the world. So, you know, when I told them what my experience was, they knew who my, my trainers were at K2, you know, it's just a small world, uh, especially for the trainer side of it. Um, so when Echo retired, I went to ATF for 10 weeks and that was, um, that was a long run. I uh, went to Front Royal Virginia to their national canine uh, training center and that is state of the art. Those guys are, you know, uh, the, the care that each of those dogs get, um, is incredible. The, um, the veterinary care, the evaluations, the things that they look at with these dogs is just unbelievable. But they, they put so much money into these dogs. They got to make sure that these dogs are going to cut it. And I can understand that. Uh, so my dog, uh, my current dog camp, he came from, uh, Auburn University. Auburn's got a canine performance science institute where they have geneticists that breed the super dogs and they will take those dogs, evaluate them, and then, you know, basically put them out to the market, uh, whether it's ATF, uh, Secret Service, any, you know, Air Force, uh, Marine Corps, anybody that needs, um, you know, these high end dogs are eligible to buy them. So, uh, ATF also gets their dogs from, uh, another vendor is called puppies behind bars and they have prison inmates on the East coast who, uh, basically take these dogs in and they are taught and they are trained how to train dogs. And from the basics to potty training them to doing, you know, uh, all the way up to advanced chores. Uh, 
Uh, a lot of those are for your our, uh, PTSD soldiers that come home and they need assistance. These dogs can do some amazing stuff. Uh, you know, open a drawer, take out a pair of socks kind of stuff. Um, and it's just phenomenal. So when they have uh, excess dogs, those dogs all get trained and then they end up going to places like ATF. And those dogs are just so accustomed to everything. They're so social, um, desensitized to, you know, our environment, to our, um, you know, different conditions that they would come across. You know, uh, last December, I got called out to go to TDC to do a search. They had a, a, a threat in one of the prisons and, you know, they requested a canine and I went up there and. I was thinking, you know, he's never been in a prison before. I need to get one of those prison dogs over here who'd feel right at home, you know, going into the going into the prison. But um, as far as, you know, the school, the training, uh, they start the dogs, they imprint them on their odors about three weeks before I get there. My dog is a food reward where echo was play reward. So the difference is when they alert on odor, you know, uh, the play reward gets a Kong or a tennis ball, something like that to play with. Whereas the food reward means that when they alert on explosive odor, that's when they eat. Um, so that was a big, big change in dynamic for me because my current dog camp, uh, he's food reward. So he has to find explosives every day in order to eat. So thankfully I live on five acres so I can plant explosives. I can plant, you know, um, training aids on my property, things like that. And then I let him go to work to go find it. Um, we'll do sniffer tins. We'll do cans, you know, uh, paint cans, stuff like that with odor in it. Um, it's a lot more time consuming. But also, too, he is on odor every day and I keep him on staple odors. Um, So, you know, the ideology or the methodology behind it, I don't know if there are pluses and minuses, pros and cons. Uh, Having worked both dogs, um, I will say the food reward dog is probably, you know, a little more driven to succeed because he knows he's going to eat. But there again, too, you know, uh, my dog will eat it, everything under the sun and doesn't even chew. So I don't know if it's, you know, he just likes to eat or not. So, uh, well, it, it, it puts a, a dedication on the handler then that, I mean, this is, there's not a day off from this. Correct. I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously if, if the dog's going to eat every day, that means he works every day. It means you're, you're not off. This is a everyday thing that y'all are training and working. That's correct. With, with the food reward dog. Yes. Um, you know, when I had the play reward, when I had echo, um, you know, Saturday morning, you wake up, you slam a bowl of food down, you go back to bed, you're good. Um, you know, if it's pouring down rain, if it's flooding, if I'm working overtime, if, you know, all the crazy stuff uh, that, you know, law enforcement throws at you, I could just slam down a bowl of food and say, here you go. Well, having the food reward dog, that's changed my dynamic. I mean, you're, if you're at home sick, if you are, you know, uh, you know, storming, flooding, whatever's going on outside, the dog still has to work. And so that was, um, that was the hardest part to get adjusted to, but now it's, it's become routine. And, um, so one of the things I do is I change up the times that we eat, you know, when we work, um, I don't let him get on a schedule to say, up, oh, it's four o'clock, it's time to eat. So let's go, let's go do some stuff because right. we may end up getting called out in the middle of the day or in the morning or at night. So I have to, I have to keep those feedings random for him. You know, he, he can't be on a set schedule. Otherwise, uh, you know, when he's hungry, he'll come get me say, Hey, it's, it's time to go to work. I'm ready to eat. 
So, and you know, it's not to say so that with, with how much time and obviously investment, I mean, for many people I mean, from K2, from the training, from ATF, and then obviously in you about what is the average time span that a dog is used or useful? Well, that is also dependent on, on the dog itself. Um, I know a lot of agencies look to get five years. Um, it's not unheard of for a dog to go 10 or better. Echo, Echo went 10 years. Um, so, but 10 years was including her military time. She passed away um, last August. As a matter of fact, the day I came home with camp, um, when I went to introduce the two dogs, I, you know, had it the the people watching her bring them up to uh, up to our fairgrounds. I wanted the two dogs to meet on neutral ground and let them get accustomed, let them play, let them do whatever they were going to do. And within uh, two minutes of seeing Echo for the first time in twelve weeks, I knew something was really wrong. Um, you know, I started to pet her. I could see that no spark in her eyes. Like, look, we got to go to the vet right now. And they started freaking out. They were like, what are you talking about? I said, we got to go to the vet. She's dying. And they started panicking and freaking out. I said, we got to go now. So uh, just knowing her, you know, being my, my everyday partner for seven years, I know my dog. And, right. you know, I, I knew her inside and out, so to speak. And so we rushed to the vet. Um, sure enough, she had a mass that was in her chest and they couldn't see through it with their uh, x-ray or with their uh, CAT scan. So I left her there overnight. Surgeon called me in the morning, says, yeah, you know, she's got a huge mass in there. We don't know what it is. So the only way to only way to do it is to uh, uh, go in and take a look. And, you know, at that point, she's retired, um, you know, started looking at stuff like finances and things like that. Sure. Uh, you know, just, just to go in with $6,000. And so I told him, I was like, you know what, just do it. You know, I, I had a long conversation with him. He's the same, uh, doctor that did her leg surgery and, um, we got to become friends. And so when I asked him, I said, if it was your dog, what would you do? And he said, do the surgery. You know, um, if she's going to have any chance at all, do the surgery. And I said, no, let's do it. So he called me back about an hour and a half later, said that he removed a tumor the size of a volleyball off of her spleen, took her spleen, took all of that. So uh, she, uh, for the most part, was uh, all of her organs were being compressed by this tumor. And, she, you know, she wasn't getting uh, um, a strong heartbeat. She, you know, she wasn't getting... Uh, you know, nutrition because she wasn't eating right. And he pretty much said she was within about 48 hours of just collapsing and dying. So I don't know, you know, just my timing coming home was uh, coincidental or not. But anyway, uh, we went through a month of healing, recovery, uh, biopsy came back as she was positive for hemangiosarcoma which is uh, a very prevalent cancer in dogs, especially Labradors, your Shepherds, your Malinois. I didn't realize it. I'd been a canine handler seven years and never heard that word before. So, you know, it's something that they can check for. And one of the vets even suggested that when they turn five, just have their spleen removed. And I thought that's interesting, you know. It was a little yeah. aggressive. Well, right. that's typically where this tends to start is in the spleen. So uh, once she was strong enough, uh, I elected to do chemotherapy and we did chemo. We did, you know, a dog can only have a, a maximum amount of chemotherapy in a lifetime. And so she had the max that she could do. And. You know, she had great quality of life. Um, she made it 
uh, just three days shy of a year from her surgery. So yeah, it cost me a lot of money, uh, out of pocket, but I got another year with her and it was quality time with her. It wasn't like she was laying around moping. She was still uh, three days a week. I'd still take her to work. I'd load both dogs in the kennel and she just had free reign. When I brought camp out to feed him, I'd put her on odor and you know, it was so funny because she would blow his doors off and, uh, you know, it's just, you know, you take that 10 year, uh, patrol officer and then you put that, you know, one month rookie in with him, uh, you you could see the difference in the two dogs. Um, but she was also helpful in teaching him stuff that I think would have taken me longer to teach. Um, you know, where to be productive on odors because he followed her. I, a lot of times I'd let both dogs out at the same time looking for the same odor and he would see her change in behavior and see that she was on odor and he started to pattern, started to mimic what it was she was doing to be successful, to be paid. So, but at the same time, when she'd alert on the odor, he'd go and jump right in front of her, push her out of the way and say, Hey, I got it. You know, that sort of stuff, you know, just the rivalry. But, uh, you know. Well, you know, after, we, uh, we've talked as far as the training and, and getting them and, and uh, sort of what they're trained on. So how often are these dogs used? I mean, is this something that I, I know you, you train every day and, and they get, but I mean, how often are they called out? I mean, how uh, beneficial to a community uh, is that uh, these dogs are there? What are they doing on a regular basis? Well, so we have a, um, a really good group of explosive canine handlers here in Montgomery County. And, um, we would, uh, or we do, we try to train once a week together, um, at a different venue. Uh, but since, you know, February, since the whole coronavirus stuff, um, most of it has been with, um, one of the school district police departments because they have the access to the warehouses, to the schools, to the offices, to that sort of stuff. So since the coronavirus, um, we haven't been able to, you know, the schools have been shut down, locked up, and we haven't had access to them. But um, we still do, uh, you know, training amongst ourselves or a couple of us will get together and we'll take off. The one thing that that makes camp different, very much different than Echo is that um, ATF also imprints them and trains them on firearms residue. So camp can find shell casings. Uh, Camp can find fired guns. Uh, So that's, you know, one of the things he's not only trained in, but he's certified in. And once a year, when we go for recertification, that's, you know, we got to go find a gun. There's going to be a gun search somewhere. And um, so when you ask about how do we get called out, things like that, we do a lot of preemptive stuff, you know, like, um, you know, our concert venues, um, schools, things like that, you know, on routine basis. Uh, you know, before performances, um, Ironman, you know, all of our big events, the, the, uh, marathons, um, and we also go down, we'll assist Houston, Houston will come up here, assist us. Uh, so we do a lot of that sort of work now, actual true call outs. Hey, we need a dog, you know, for a bomb threat. We'll probably do one of those a quarter, uh, but here, you know, lately my, my bread and butter has been, you know, finding guns and finding shell casings and stuff like that. Uh, we had a shooting uh, in a park down in the woodlands and, uh, you know, they couldn't find the shell casings. So I just happened to be a mile from there and said, hey, you know, I can come over. So I got over there and uh, work with the detectives and the CSI, made sure that Everything that was known was already picked up. You know, all of that stuff gets tagged, identified, and then removed so that the dog's not finding stuff they already found. Uh, 
So yeah, I put him in there and he happened to find, you know, a missing 22 shell casing from that shooting. So it helped, uh, you know, him finding that shell casing helped solidify what the witness heard, you know, the witness heard, you know, X amount of gunshots and they recovered, you know, all but the one, you know, that sort of thing. So, uh, we got all of the shell casings, but you know, we've been on searches before where we had a, um, we had an ag robbery and the suspect fired at, uh, his victim a couple of times, took off on foot with a rifle. He hid the rifle just uh, a short way from the scene in a wooded area and then uh, came back about an hour later and retrieved the rifle in a vehicle. So they call us out. I get out there, get on the ground. It's 100 degrees out. It is just miserable for me and the dog. And so I put the dog out and we started looking and he went right up to that tree and he sniffed the base of the tree, got his feet up on the tree like he wanted to climb in it, and then he just alerts. And I'm like, uh, there's no gun here, <laughs> you know, because I've got, you know, I've got 20 officers all standing around watching him work, and I just got an alert on nothing. And so I, I call him off. We take off. We I put him back in another area and he starts working his way right back to that same tree again. He goes back. He sits at that tree and I'm like, all right, I'm not quite sure what's happening here, but, you know, there there's odor here. There's something here. So uh, we ended up loading up in a car uh, or load up in a truck and go into a, another location about a quarter mile away. And, uh, you know, just this search area was just huge. So while we're finishing up the, we got a witness drive up in a car and she, she asked us, she said, did y'all find that gun? Said, no, we didn't find the gun. She goes, you're right there. She goes, it's right there by that tree. She goes, he put that gun down and you know, he, he came back later on. She goes, I think he got it and left. Well, sure enough, the dog was alerting on the residue that was left behind from that gun. Uh, that's pretty much the gun was laying there in that area for an hour. And the dog picked up on it. So I thought, oh, wow. So I ended up putting the dog back in the truck and we took off and went back over there. He went back over and alerted on that tree again. And this time I paid him, you know, I fed him. So told him, good boy. You know, he was telling me what he was smelling all the time. Um, I just didn't realize it at the time. You know, I don't know. You talk about as far as uh, finding firearms and finding the shell casings. um, What about uh, the actual projectile? I mean, like being in the ground or nearby is, is there enough residue still on that, that they would find that? Or is it, is there not enough from it burning up from being fired or, or the, the difference between that? It's subjective. Um, so I would do my own tests. Um, when I say do my own tests, I would go out in my pasture and I would shoot into a tree out of 22 and I would shoot into the tree. Right. Um, it was, you know, a down tree laying out in the pasture. I'd fire one shot and then I'd move over about four feet and I'd fire another shot. I'd let it sit overnight and I brought both dogs out, you know, when, uh, when Echo was still with me. Um, Echo in the search would, she would locate the shell casings in the tall grass. Camp would not. But camp alerted on on both bullet entry points into the tree where echo did not so um dealing with a 22 you've got very little powder to begin with so you know you've got to make sure you put them in very productive areas because you'll spend all of their energy and not not be productive not find what it is you're looking for 
And, you know, with, with camp, um, he got on those, you know, those entry points and there was still enough powder residue. So, um, I haven't specifically gone looking for a bullet, but I know if there's odor there, they can do it. Um, one thing that I, that I was informed about when I was at ATF is that the DC sniper they had back in the nineties, um, one of his hiding spots where he fired from uh, one of his concealed spots, one of the ATF canines had actually gone to that area and alerted to that point. And they were able to take samples and find gunshot residue from his AR on a brick wall. So that was one of his hiding spots. And, you know, pretty much they drew out the trajectory and saw where he was hiding when he fired the shots based on the canine alert. So I thought that was, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, so can they do it? Yes. Um, but it's, it's something that has to be taught. They're not just going to do it instinctively, you know, and from the best information I got during my training was, um, really, they don't know exactly what it is they're alerting on, you know, what chemical component in explosives and drugs in, uh, you know, gosh, they have, you know, uh, the electronics dogs, they've got dogs that are detecting currency. They have, uh, dogs that are finding contraband fruits and vegetables at the airport. Um, a lot of the, the dogs that wash out of the bomb program are re-imprinted and are sold to hotels to find bed bugs. So gosh, you know, they don't know exactly what it is that they're, you know, which chemical they're detecting, but they know it's consistent enough to, you know, to say, yeah, he knows this odor. And how it was explained to me was if you walk into your house, um, you can smell somebody cooking beef stew. Um, you know, beef stew based on, you know, how it smells. Well, when the dog walks in, the dog doesn't smell beef stew. The dog smells each one of those ingredients completely independent of each other. So you can have the beef stew, but as long as your major components, you know, your, your broth, your stock, you know, the major components of the stew is there, the dog will detect it, even though there's variations to the recipe. You can add stuff and remove stuff, but as long as the base stock is still there, they'll, you know, they'll alert to it. So, you know, we talk about um, the future of policing, future of different things. So where do you see the future going in, in uh, the canine and, and the bomb handling? And do you see uh, advances or is it just a, an age old thing that, that is just there? I think a lot of that has to do with the agency um, and the purpose of the dog. Um, I've got two friends of mine that are... Um, they're police officers in Iceland. Um, Iceland, their police and military are kind of meshed together. And they're doing some neat stuff with their canines where um, they're actually tracking and bite dogs as well as odor detection. And they will hover with a drone and they will shoot a laser from a drone and paint a car or a building or a doorway or something like that. And that dog will take off from a hundred yards away and go to where that laser is pointing, you know, stuff like that. So I see them implementing a little bit more and more technology. Um, there's some companies that are out there now that, well, not now that these products have been out for 10 years or greater, um, tactical electronics. Uh, they have, um, camera systems that fit on a harness on a dog and they have little um, headsets, if you will, little speakers that go into the dog's right adjacent to the dog's ear and they can send a dog in to search and look and they can see what the dog is doing via the camera and then give the dog instructions left, right or straight with beeps in their ear. Um, stuff like that. So the technology is there um, to do a lot of that stuff. But, 
you know, the training, teaching the dog to obey those commands, things like that. That's where it's, you know, really intensive. Um, I think, honestly, I think they'll always be uh, canines. I think they'll always be canine programs, even as as sophisticated as our test equipment. I've got, you know, test equipment that I carry where I can swab a surface and I can tell you whether there's explosive residue on that surface. Um, canine can do it a whole lot faster. Um, for example, when they had uh, uh, the shoe bomber, Richard Reed had his um, peroxide based explosive in his shoe. Um, the reason why the airlines freaked out and panicked is because we didn't have detection equipment at the airports that could detect this. That's why everybody was, you know, uh, the quantities of shampoo you could carry were so small, things like that. Um, they didn't want you to carry, you know, full-size peroxide-based explosives on board an airplane. So the canines were actually imprinted on peroxide-based explosives, TATP, HMTD, those things. And so the dogs could detect it and the dogs can search a lot. They can search luggage. They can search people. So um, the dogs being able to train them were, gosh, 10 years um, in front of our technology. You know, we have the, the sophistication now to do it. Um, just can't do it as cost efficient or as search efficient as a canine can. Well, Joe, that's about uh, wrapping up the time that we have. So, I mean, I certainly appreciate all the all the knowledge that you always bring here and, and uh, talking to us about uh, this specific discipline that uh, we don't get to always see. It's always sort of before events happen, uh, sort of behind the scenes. We, you know, that's the purpose behind it. It's uh, an event goes on and, and doesn't really see all the all the things that we do uh, during that. Uh, but uh, again, thank you so much for uh, giving us that information. If there's a topic that you'd like to cover in future shows, if you'd like to be a guest or you'd like to sponsor the show, reach out to me at dan at crimescenetoday.com. Look forward to seeing you next week.